Our scripture text this morning is Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, we'll read that entire chapter as we've been going through this Advent series through some of the relevant texts in Isaiah. That's Isaiah 11 is found on page 732 of your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing in prayer. Lord God, as we open your word, we pray that we would be fully devoted, fully in tune with it, and that our minds would be set upon it in deep concentration, as well as our hearts to receive it, that we would be ready and willing to hear. Father, speak to us what is true and speak to us what we need to know. Give to us strength, even this time of worship. We are but weak flesh, and we need your upholding hand, even as we seek to worship you. Bless us, we pray in your name. Amen. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's word. 
People of God, imagine, if you will, having visited at one time a forest, and, and not just a, a, a puny little forest, a patch of trees, but a, a great and glorious forest that had stretched as far as your eyes could see of majestic trees, strong and tall, wide and, and straight, powerful, conveying the strength of nature in these trees. And and you come back and, and, and you look through this forest and labeled on these trees are the names of kings and nations representing the, the nations and kings and their power and their might. And then you leave and, and you come back at a different day and you say, I'm going to see this forest again. And as you rise up this hill that had obscured the view and you crest it and you look to see again, wanting to see this, this green lush forest stretched before you, what you see is utter devastation. The trees have been cut down. The land has been burned and blackened. Instead of a forest of mighty trunks, there's a forest of stumps cut clean, barely above the land. It's devastation. It's been deforested. It's been judged. And and that forest that has stretched as, as long as you could see, representing kings and nations, and even the people of Israel in their corner of that forest, is gone. And you go walking through, and, and there, there was this label on the, on the base of the trunk that had been the mighty tree of Assyria, sheared, gone and burned. The trunk's not, not even there, it's just a stump that remains blackened and burnt. And, and you walk through, and there's, there's Babylon labeled there, all these nations. And then you make your way to the grove that had been Israel, and you had thought, but this, surely this would have been preserved. Surely this wouldn't have been scorched by the hand of God and cut down and judged. And those trees are gone as well. The trees of David and, and all of his line are cut down. But as you're almost ready to turn away and, and turn back from the sad sight, you notice something right on the stump that was labeled Jesse's stump. David's father, Jesse. You see something, you see a little shoot coming off kind of the side of it, made with a little bit of green on it. It's a shoot. It's not much. Maybe you've even seen that in nature where there's a tree that has been cut, which you think that spells death, but yet out of it is this one twig, a twig that has life. And as you would bend down to sort of touch this little twig, you hear these words, the words of God. You hear these ringing through this empty, barren land. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What do these words mean as you're in this devastated land? Why do I bring this imagery before us? Well, it's the imagery of Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 11. It's the imagery of what we saw in Isaiah 6. As as the Lord promised and prophesied, he represented these nations being cut down with imagery of trees and stumps, of, of devastated lands that are cut forth. Deforestation is the language that he used. That's what he puts before us, as, as often nations were represented in God's word as trees and plants and vines. That's the imagery before us, but what does this mean? I'm going to use a, a pastor's outline that I came across. I found it very helpful. The outline is a hopeless stump. A hopeless stump, and we see that just in the first part of verse 1. And then we see a fruitful branch In the second half of verse 1 through verse 5, we see a coming peace in verses 6 through 9, and then we see a people gone but not forgotten in verses 10 through 16. 
We look first at this hopeless stump, or we could call it this kingdom lost. It's verse 1a. It's, it's just really the, the first part of it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's, it's really just that stump word. And, and what does that convey? Well, it conveys that the kingdom is going to be cut down. As hopeful and hope-filled as this passage is, you have to acknowledge that this is a stump and so would appear to be hopeless. The Lord is saying that from the mighty trees, all cut down, but not just Assyria, Israel as well, Israel's kings, and they will be a stump. That's judgment. It's coming. And so you have to recognize that. You have to reckon with that. Judgment is coming on the people. There's this devastation. Chapters 9 and 10 had shown this. David had been reduced to that state. You can remember back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verse 13, when we went through that, when Isaiah was commissioned, and in his commissioning, he was told what would happen. And the Lord had said, And a tenth will remain in the land. It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And then in chapter 9, 14, the Lord begins to trim the, the trees and judge his people. In chapter 9, verse 18, it says, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Judgment comes. What do we take from that? You know what we don't like? We don't like stumps, shoots, and hopeless situations. We don't like that. We don't like to hear that, that, the, that the hope of the people will first have to be cut down and the tree felled. You know what we want? We want restoration projects, but what we mean by that is facelifts. We, 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 we want to say, but Lord, don't cut the trees down. Don't cut David's line down. Don't, don't come, come, come there and, and rev up your chainsaw and just obliterate it. Is there something we can do? Can we restore it? Can we, can we give it nutrients? Can we water this tree? Can we make it that way? Does it have to be so devastating? That's, that's often the way God works. Stumps, shoots, and apparently hopeless situations. But why? Why would he do that? Well, there's, a, there's two aspects, and I'm giving a shorter answer to what is a, a difficult question, but two short answers to that. Well, the first is justice. Righteousness of God. The people are sinning. They need to be judged or disciplined the people need to, to have experienced this, and we don't recognize how bad it is, and we think you can just restore it. We feel like it shouldn't have to be cut down, but it does. So the first aspect to answer that question, why does God so often do this, is often case judgment and justice. But there's another answer, and that's that, well, God would have us live on faith, won't he? He, we would live according to faith, and so he puts often, us oftentimes in those situations where it is twigs and stumps and shoots upon which you have to place all your hope. And I mean that. I'm looking at us, at the people of God, and saying, your hope at times needs to be placed on what is a shoot coming from a dead stump in a barren land. That seems very unlikely. That seems like it couldn't happen, and that's a fool's hope. 
Living on a prayer. Have you heard that term, living on a prayer? What does that mean? It's, it's living on something that's so unlikely. Right? That's what we think. <clears throat> to live on a prayer means that it's probably not going to happen. You're probably maybe a bit of an optimist to even think that that could happen, whatever you're placing your hope in. It's a rather unfortunate description and phrase, isn't it? Because living on a prayer is the strength of a Christian life. This passage presents enough hope to hold the people in the palm of God's hand. It it gives to the, the, the people of the Lord enough promise and hope for them to have a great amount of optimism for the future, to know what the future will hold. It's there, it's promised there, but it's also coming from a stump. You see, the Lord would not abandon us, and he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't just say, hey, believe, and I'm giving you no reason to believe. So there's hope there, but there's also, you have to act on faith. What is faith? Faith is not sight. It's not what you see in front of you. It's not that you can place it there and know, yes, I I can see that I'll be saved. It's there in front of me. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, looked for, the conviction that this will come, though you don't see it. We are the people of faith, and and so God would have his people trust at times in shoots and stumps. And we live on a prayer, but we don't say that as a defeated way. We're just living on a fool's hope. No, we're living on the prayer to God and to the promises that he gives And that's what we see. The the prophecy of Isaiah here is meant to be the life support for the people. I I specifically chose to go through Isaiah for Advent after just having gone through Lamentations. We went through the darkness of the book of Lamentations and that grief, and as bad as it can get for the people. And why why did we then turn to Isaiah? Well, Isaiah, though written before Lamentations, was pointing to these pieces of hope. And if I can point back to Lamentations, in Lamentations 3, you see that there's this representation of the faithfulness of God amidst the destruction. There's this great profession of faith when you would think there shouldn't be. Well, why would that be the case? Well, it's because of promises like this that the people already had in Isaiah. Promises to know that through the grief, God was being faithful. Through the destruction, God would bring about regrowth and rebirth and something greater and something better. And that's why we turn to it as well. It's that promise. It's that hope. It's Christ. It's clinging to Christ. It's clinging to a shoot. It's clinging to a baby in a manger. How shoot and twig-like is that? A couple so poor, they couldn't even stay anywhere. There was no one to take them in. They had no family to really take them in in Bethlehem, or if they did, it was just in their stable. Christ, the, the king, is born in a stall in a barn. Born in a barn, that's what he was. Is that any more twig-like? And yet the assurance of what will happen and of what he does. Our life support is this fruitful branch. This fruitful branch, which is our next point. A fruitful branch in verse verse 1 through 5. And the return of the king is what we... What we see here, the return of the king, and yes, if you are any what familiar with a certain book series, I am taking that, that title from one of those books. In a better way, it's, it is the true return of the king here. There's reason to hope. 
this mysterious shoot. Look at this shoot. Part of the reason to hope is what we see here. You would see in verse 1, look at verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, and I would encourage you to do that. If you look at verse 1, we read that it's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. But then if you scan down to verse 10, you will see that he's also, the hope is the root of Jesse. Now, if you would know what anything about trees and plants and these things, well, which is it? Is it a shoot or a root? Because they're not the same thing. A shoot springs from the root. The root is what gives the nourishment. It's the origin. It's the roots. So, so which is it? And that mystery is, is meant to be there. The imagery is meant to convey something of this mystery that this twig that you're trusting in is, is not only coming from this stump, it's not only growing off of that, it's a root. You actually see that as mysterious as it is, the origin of the stump was this root to begin with. It's its origin. You begin to see, even as we're in this deforest land, as you're, as you're kneeling down and looking at this twig, there's something unique about it. It isn't all hopeless. The root of, of Jesse, remember, Jesse is David, David's father, his line, the, the root of that. The origins of what was the golden age of the people of Israel is here. And a shoot is growing from it. That's what you're, you're meant to see. It's mysterious. As one author says, perhaps this is only a hint, but it looks like we're dealing with far more than simply a human Messiah. Should it really surprise us when Isaiah has already told us his name is Emmanuel? How unlikely God's kingdom frequently looks. As Jesus indicated, it is often simply unimpressive. Seems very mustard-seedy and about as visible as hidden leaven. That's the way the kingdom of God begins, and that's the way, at times, the kingdom of God appears. But this, this twig will change the world. Why does the text refer to Jesse instead of David? See, a couple times in this text, it's, it's from the stump of Jesse. Wouldn't it make more sense to say it's from the stump of David? Jesse, remember, was never a king in Israel. He was a nobody. Right? Plain and simple. God called Samuel to go anoint one of Jesse's sons, a, a, a normal, ordinary man in Israel. So why does it say Jesse? And there's, there's numerous ideas for it. It could be that this, this David will spring as a new beginning, that this, this shoot is a new beginning, just as Jesse was the, the beginning there. This is a new beginning. It could be meaning that. It, it could also bring to mind the origins of David himself. So just as he sprang from a no-account man, this Jesse that Samuel chose, you can be reminded then of the choosing. You can be reminded that what did Jesse do? Jesse took all of his sons, or at least the sons he thought were worth it, and brought them before Samuel and paraded them forward. And each one, God said to Samuel, not him, not him, not him. Well, who is the one? It was the one that they didn't think was even likely, the one that was still tending the sheep, the youngest of them. And that would convey that unlikeliness, that twig-likeness, the shoot, the offspring. It, it wasn't expected. So that could be why Jesse's mentioned. Or it could be a shoot mentioning Jesse because we know what Jesse produces. This is likely where, where I would fall on, on what exactly it means. If, if Jesse and his tree had produced David, well, what's this shoot going to be? 
You're going back to, in one sense, good stock. And what I don't mean by that is that Jesse was such an incredible person. What I mean is, is if David, that golden age king, the man after God's own heart, was from Jesse's own root system, and you see another growing from that, that would convey to you, this, this, is, this is David and the real David, the true David. This would also distance this one to come from all the failure of kings that had come before. I think that's why the text is, is saying this is Jesse's stump, the origins of, of who he is. Look at this, this branch from the stump produces. What does it produce? Look at verse 2. It shows that he is one endowed with the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is in, upon him. The Spirit of the Lord greatly fills him. Why is that significant? You've read through the book of Judges, you know when the Spirit of the Lord descended upon them, great and mighty deeds were coming. Nations were going to be thwarted and the people were going to be delivered because the Spirit of the Lord descended on a deliverer. And when they did that, when the Spirit did that, you have Samson killing thousands. And you have judges delivering the peoples. And you have the people and, and conquering much greater nations than themselves. Or when the Spirit of the Lord comes on someone in the Old Testament, it's, it's to produce something wondrous. The Spirit of the Lord in the book of Exodus has the same language comes upon the artisans of the temple, and they're inspired to, to create the dwelling place of God. And so the Spirit equips for a purpose. But notice that unlike those who had come before, where the Spirit would descend for a time, where he would empower for a purpose, this coming one, this shoot, is so Spirit-filled that it just is every aspect, every part of him is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. The Elijah who did great wonders when filled with the Spirit, or the Elisha who had a double portion of the Spirit that was on Elijah and what he did, it's nothing compared to what this coming king, this coming twig will be. Verse 2 says the Spirit of wisdom and understanding will be upon him. And, and, and we go through these, these lists of qualifications and I want us to see how important this is. I, I think sometimes we can miss this because we're, I guess we're kind of desensitized to it a little bit. But if you were looking for a ruler and, and someone were to come here in here right now and say the world is broken and you need a leader and let me read to you, let me, let me proclaim to you what kind of leader you will receive here, we would be listening with, a, with, with, with all of our ears. We would want to know who is this leader going to be? And so as we read this, don't just think, yeah, it's biblical imagery of Isaiah, Isaiah prophecy. That's kind of what we can do. But no, this is the character of your ruler, of your king, and who you will swear allegiance to. Who are you going to swear allegiance to? And, and who are you going to place your faith in? You better understand who he is. And that, that's what we see. So it's, it's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Jesus certainly portrayed and showed his wisdom, his understanding. All discernment, right? There, none, of the, none of the enemies of the days could thwart him until he had chosen to, to lay down his life. He confounded the best teachers of his day. As a young boy, he astonished the teachers in the temple. He was, un, he was filled with understanding, filled with wisdom. And you need that in a leader. As we talked about last time, we know what it's like to experience in this world unwise leaders, fools of leaders. But this is not that. This is a, a one filled with understanding. He's also governed by the Spirit to execute the Lord's plan. 
We see that as he's filled with the spirit of counsel. This kind of counsel is likely different from what we saw in Isaiah 9 as a wonderful counselor. It's, it's related, but what this is, it's, it's likely associated with military planning, fulfilling the counsels of war. That he's going out to execute the Lord's plan. This leader is coming and he knows the counsel and he is going to proceed with it to carry it out. And that's coupled with might, as you see in the text. He's power power to do this. Finally, in verse 2, you notice that he's filled with the spirit of knowledge and of, it says, the fear of the Lord. Knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. What's different in this about wisdom and understanding? This is the first-hand knowledge of God. This is the fear of the Lord, which is a life lived in experience of who God is, a life lived in fellowship and a relationship with him, to know God and to know God as he is to live before his face and to have intimate fellowship with him, which is exactly what we see in Jesus. If you would ever think there was someone who didn't need a devotion time or didn't need time to to take, to, to spend in the presence of God as a human does in prayer, would it not be Jesus? You would think he wouldn't have to do that. And yet there was no one who had a more difficult schedule, more burdens placed upon him, and who craved and desired to withdraw and be with the Lord in prayer, to commune with his Father. Fear the Lord, an intimate fellowship and a relationship with him. That's displayed in our King, in our human King, one of our same flesh. This is him. Verse 3 shows it's not just his behavior, it's his delight. It's not put on. Politicians and political leaders, they put things on. You, never, you can sometimes never know, is this, is this true? Is, is what they're saying to me true? Is this just to get a vote? Is, is this actually what they believe? No. It's his delight. All that about him. And you see how he will reign. It talks about he, he won't just judge by what his eyes and ears hear. And, and that's the limitation of, of, of men. That's the limitation of what we have. We can, only, we can only do our best with what our eyes see and what our ears hear. We'll, we'll do our best with that. But no, he's, he's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with understanding, and his judgments then will never fail. He won't make a mistake. The best of human leaders have made plenty of mistakes. He won't. Notice verse 4, with righteousness he shall shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So displays the Gospels when Jesus came and even quoted from Isaiah 61 and said, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and to the meek. Who are the poor and the meek? It's, It's those who've been humbled, those who've been mistreated and abused, as well as those who are meek, who mean not only those who've been who've been put down and abused and are poor in that sense, but as well those who are meek enough to know that that they can't fix the situation those who have learned that they are poor and that they are destitute of everything good. Coming to broken sinners. That's who he will judge with righteousness, the poor. And notice, notice what he does. He's got the warrior's strength and demeanor to carry it out. Look at the second half of verse 4. He comes to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You see, not only is he a scholar and a wise man, but but even we could see sometimes with scholarship and wisdom comes a a bit of an incapacity to act. 
You just sort of talk about it and you never actually do it. That's not the case with him. Not only does he have understanding and wisdom, he carries it out. And and where is it coming from? Where is the power and authority? How is he going to strike the earth? Has he got a sword in his hand? Has he got an army at his back? No. It's by the word of his mouth. Jesus comes in the power of the word. He comes with kingdom keys that we're very familiar with. He comes with keys and, and, and the preaching of the gospel, even himself, who opens the kingdom. And to reject it is to close it. And he comes to bring forth fire. He comes to bring forth justice and strike the earth. And, and he's going to strike everyone. Some, he will strike down their sinful natures. He will cut that away. He will strike the dead man and bring to life the new. And there will some who, if you don't repent, if you don't trust in him, will be struck down completely and totally because, as any leader must do, he has to come in and judge. He has to gain the victory. And, and we see that in, the, in this text as well. Verse 5, righteousness is his belt, an ornament and symbol of office and power. That was the belt. You, there's a double quotation of this belt here, and one of them likely refers to, to the undergarments itself. And what would that mean? It means that the, the entirety of who he is, his power and authority is this righteousness, and he's girded in this righteousness down to, to, to the, the, the completeness of his apparel and dress. And what does this mean? And why does this matter to you sitting there in the pew? Isaiah wants you to know how sufficient and how adequate your Messiah is, just as he wanted the people then to know this. You see, this is the aspect of the text that that gives to us hope, that gives to us the ability to trust in the promise of God and, and uphold us and be our lifeline. The lifeline is that we have this king coming, this king who will return. How fully he, he meets your needs. How fully equipped he is to fulfill the duties placed upon him that you would not doubt. And in fact, that you would have joy to know that this is our ruler. And from us, that he has come. From our vantage point, that he is on the throne. This is describing him there. And you have no cause, no need, and no right to doubt him or his plan. That infuses us with hope and strength. Right? It's as simple as being the little kid who says, you don't know who my dad is. I'm going to tell my dad something. And, and what, what is the little kid doing? The little kid is trusting in, in, in someone else. The little kid is, is trusting even in a difficult situation that they might be in, in the, in the power of his father. We know that in a very imperfect way on, on this earth with our own. But this is perfected in that idea here when our trust is in, well, who is on our throne? Who's the throne? Who's the king? He is our Lord and Savior. He's our dear brother. What a description. And what does he bring in? It's our third point. He brings in a coming peace in verses 6 to 9. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this point. I think the imagery is rather self-explanatory in a way. The coming peace that he brings in is is glorious. The reign of the king brings in peace. And we would normally associate peace from a political ruler with with the absence of strife in the nation. And maybe a time of prosperity, but this goes far more than that. The peace he brings in is curse reversal. 
curse reversal, everything that we take for granted in nature, but is actually a part of the curse, is overturned. Notice, predators are friends of prey. And it, and it mentions the, the, the typical prey of that predator, the wolf and the lamb and so forth, that, that typically it was these who were at odds and it was they who were going at each other's throats, literally, more the wolf to the lamb, as you understand. But what, what's going to happen to the predators? They're going to they're graze. They're going to eat grass. They're going to be like an ox in the field. And your child, your young child, will lead them. Your young child in this time of peace will walk up to a grizzly bear and, and pat it and say, soft. Teddy bear to a grizzly bear, yes. That's what's going to happen. What we're depicted as the most wicked, <clears throat> poisonous, slyest of creatures, the snake, the adder. Your weaned child, your little toddler crawling around can reach down and, and, and grab the snake and play with it. That's how full this piece is, and, and what a picture. What a picture of the shalom and peace that we await. How glorious won't the new heavens and earth be when this is the case, and the curse is reversed. And you know what this means? The peace is reigning. Now you can say, well, how is that? I can't go, can't throw my kid in the in the polar bear den at Brookfield Zoo, what's, what's going to happen there? It's not happening yet. Well, no, not in that sense, but the, the peace and reign of Christ has already come and, and does happen in our own hearts and spirits and souls. The, the reversal of the curse has already begun. There's new life in the people of God. There's the fruit of the Spirit flowing from the people of God and the church, and we stand to inherit it. And so it's not some fool's hope to, to depict this type of peace. It's your future. You will, you will, those who are in Christ, the people of God, and that's what I'm addressing here, the gathered people of God, we will experience this. It isn't a dream. It isn't something that's so unlikely. It will happen. Peace because he reigns. Peace because our king is better. So our king has returned. That's the hope, and, and you see it will cover the whole earth. And this depiction, this they, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In all my holy mountain. What this is showing is that the world becomes the mountain of God. It becomes Zion. It becomes his dwelling place. As, as Eden was supposed to be, so now fulfilled through the, the coming shoot of Jesse will be peace on the mountain of God, and all will become the temple of God, and his dwelling place will be Zion itself. And that's, that's what will happen to the world. The knowledge you see of the Lord, that understanding and fear and worship of him, look at it will be like the oceans covering the earth. That's how, how much it will flood and, and, and grow and, and come over the earth. It will fill it. Jesus' coming means that this, this peace will happen. And may this peace captivate your minds and your hearts and give to you hope, give to you peace. You see, that's the endowment of peace we have now that this text can give to you. Peace because of the coming peace. Peace because of work done. We labor, right? You labor and do your hours, and you know there is a rest coming. You, you labor all week, and, and you know the Lord's day is coming. You know there's a time of rest coming, and, and that gets you through it. It lets you do a lot of labor. It lets you push your bodies and know that but rest is coming. And that's what we have in this peace. And finally, in our 
fourth point, a people gone but not forgotten, in verses 10 through 16, a people gone but not forgotten, or we could call this the true exodus, Christ's exodus. Isaiah wants you to understand that God has not forgotten his people, and this is picking up that, that imagery of, of this stump and the, and the judgment and depression that this would cause to the people, but he's telling them, listen, though this will happen, you're not forgotten. And you notice again, it says, in that day, referring to what day? Well, it's the day of Christ, and it's the day when when the nations will come back to the Lord, and it's the day when the people will come back to him, his chosen people. It's Exodus. You see that in the last verse of the text. Just as happened in the first Exodus, so will happen in this second Exodus, the true one. The people will come back. There will be deliverance. There will be a land of promise drawing in the nations. And that's the day that is brought when? Well, it comes in part when Jesus comes. comes in foretaste in his ministry, even as he, he's, even as he ministers to Gentiles. But it begins to come in full on the day of Pentecost. On the day the, the scattered and dispersed tribes are, are back in Jerusalem and they hear of the Lord. And those who believe, and, and it comes as the gospel goes forth from there, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And, and that's what's happening now. So, so there was that day at dawn, but we're still seeing the dawning of that day. It's an already and a not yet. It's already come, but it's not fully come. So it's the day we're in now as well. The true exodus of God's people. You see it first. Both aspects of it are introduced in this section, and it shall be in that day. And the first is in verse 11, and it refers to the care, or verse 10, I should say, and it refers to the nations that are brought in. In that day, the nations will be brought in. They will be drawn to this Lord. We've seen that happen. We're living proof of it. And then you see in verse 11, same introduction, but now it's for that dispersed people, that the tribes of Israel Israel will be brought in. They'll be unified. And what had been divided, warring brothers and sisters of the people of God will be brought back and made whole. Notice Ephraim, which Isaiah uses that term Ephraim often, and it mostly refers in his way of saying Israel. And so Israel will not be jealous of Judah. Judah won't harass Israel. Rather, they will be reunited, and rather, there will be a plunder of all the world that takes place, just as there was in the first exodus. Those who remain enemies of God will find themselves defeated by his people, not by the power of a sword, because this text shows us the nature of this kingdom is a spiritual one. The greatness of the king who comes doesn't come with political power and worldly power. He comes with the spirit of God and the word of his mouth. And so as we began, we come to, to this close here. You know, you're, we left ourselves in this barren desert of trees, just kneeling down and, and, and looking at this shoot. And we see this vision of God. All these words and images flash through your head. And what you've just witnessed is a vision of the true exodus of God and what will happen. And that word lends its credibility then, and and suddenly you're able to to believe through faith. This is exactly what this twig is going to do. This is exactly what the shoot from Jesse will accomplish, as unlikely as it may look now, as many years as it might take, it will happen. 
think we can have new appreciation for that exodus imagery of Jesus Christ. I think we can have new appreciation for that time of the transfiguration of Jesus. We had gone through it in Luke 9, 30 and 31. When Moses and Elijah come to the transfigured, glorious Lord, and what does it say in Luke 9, 30 and 31? That they were talking. Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about. You say, what were they talking about? This. Isaiah. Peace. The coming back of the dispersed, salvation for the nations, of what he was about to do in Jerusalem, of the exodus that was going to take place. And what good does this do to you? Well, it was to put before the people of God a plain truth. The branch is your only hope, and you must long for his rule and trust in him wholly. This twig is your only hope, and it takes faith to hold on to him, but those who do will be restored and given a promised land and given peace. Knowing this, knowing what's going to happen, what do we do? Well, we believe. We believe. We believe in the branch, or else we will be cut off and destroyed. That's the only correct interpretation and application of this text. You better believe in that branch. You better place all your hope and all your faith in it. And then hope. What's the difference between belief and hope? Belief is the mere fact that you are indeed placing your trust in something. But hope, hope is desire. Hope is, demo, is emotions. Hope is, is what you are, have set your life's goal to be. And so you're hoping in Christ. Just like Simeon and Anna, how, how did they display hope? They displayed hope by waiting daily for, for this, this to be fulfilled and for this to happen, and their life was devoted to it. And that's what hope is to do. That's what we should do. So we believe, we hope, we seek. How do you seek the kingdom of God? Well, you seek it in your own life. You seek to bring about the reign and rule of our, of our true king. Now in your life, you put your own sin to death. You obey him. You seek to bring what is the, the way of the kingdom of heaven onto the kingdom of this earth. You seek it, you follow it, you pursue it. You have eight eyes to see it. You have a different goal. Every one of us should have a different goal from everyone else we live with who don't believe. What is the goal of life? What is everyone else living for? Well, well, they're living for in some way or another just to make this miserable existence a little less awful and a little more tolerable. But they have no hope. There is no peace to come. There is a grave. Your goal is the kingdom. Live, live it. Seek it. Let your decisions be made by that and that truth. And finally, praise. Praise this, this little twig we see in Isaiah, because we know what he has already become. This tree has grown strong already. What did Jesus say of the, the kingdom of God, that mustard seed? The smallest of all seeds becomes the greatest of all trees. It's flourishing, it's growing. And it will only grow bigger, and it will only grow stronger. And so we praise the Lord. The true David, the true stem of Jesse has come, and the true exodus is in our midst now. Rejoice, for the reign of Christ has begun 
And we will see this more tomorrow in the next chapter. In that, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are thankful for our hope and that we do not have hopelessness, but rather right in Isaiah what we see to be a twig, which we see come in the Gospels to be a child in a manger. But as we see in the book of Acts, we see a church that is small, and yet as Acts ends, it's, it's all over the world. And we can fill in the rest of history, even here as we sit in Beecher, Illinois, how far indeed has the kingdom and the return of our king spread. Thank you, Lord, for making us a part of this. May we believe it and hope in it and seek it and praise you for it. We ask this in your name.